May I, as President of Ireland, Maruptronahin, send you my warmest wishes for a peaceful and a happy Christmas and New Year. Christmas is a time when we can pause for reflection as we look back on the year gone by. It is a time when it is surely appropriate to recall the story that lies at the heart of this festive season. That story is of a long and difficult journey and the birth of a child in a temporary home in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Let us think, too, about how far from a state of peace that region is today and how the absence of peace reflects our failure at a human and diplomatic level and how sadly we hear words that provoke rather than heal. Across the many years and miles that separate us from the original Christmas story, we can unfortunately see too many parallels in our own society today. As we reflect on this story of the search for a home, for security, let us also consider the many personal and difficult journeys currently being undertaken by so many of the fellow citizens of our shared and vulnerable planet at home and abroad. As we reflect on the story of Bethlehem, let us recognise its resonance in our contemporary society, be inspired to answer its call, to stand in human solidarity with those for whom and for whatever reason this Christmas will be a dark and difficult one. This Christmas, once again, the burden of homelessness will overshadow the festive season for those deprived of a secure and permanent shelter. We are challenged, I suggest, to turn this time of celebration into a sustained commitment of awareness and care for those for whom each day is an act of survival. May I thank those who work so tirelessly to support those in our society who are vulnerable. I have been fortunate to meet with so many groups and volunteers who have shone and continue to shine a light of hope into the lives of some of our most marginalized people. Their work is an inspiring example and an uplifting reminder of the real will and capacity that exists among the people of Ireland to reimagine our society and achieve an inclusive republic for all of our citizens. As we reach the end of 2017 and begin our journey into a new year, let us make it a shared journey, encompassing the needs of all. As we leave behind the dark days of midwinter, let us share the dawning light of a new beginning as an opportunity to create during the year to come a sense of hope and optimism for each and every person and family. Once again, I ask us all to reflect on the ongoing plight of refugees and displaced people, on the many millions of children, women and men around the world who are so far from the comfort and dignity of a home or secure shelter. During 2017, we learned that 20 people are newly displaced every minute forced to leave their homes, to seek refuge. Wars, conflict, persecution and natural disasters have forced more people to flee than at any other time since records began. Indeed, we have read of some of those fleeing being sold into slavery. The ongoing humanitarian crisis emanating from Rakhine State in Myanmar, with as many hundreds of thousands of Rohingya people fleeing to neighbouring Bangladesh, reminds us vividly of what some communities face on their long and difficult struggle to find a rightful place in a peaceful society. As a global community and as responsible global citizens, we are called upon to respond in a way which will respect the universal right to live in safety and with dignity. I know that Irish citizens across the world will stand with those who are suffering and that they will, as before, support those who are responding to these crises and who are thus showing solidarity with the most vulnerable. Sabine and I had the great pleasure in 2017 of meeting many of the Irish abroad, including those in Australia and New Zealand. We were delighted to meet so many of our extended Irish family. To those and all the Irish abroad, and in whatever circumstances, I send greetings. May I also, Maruk Tarana 
thank each and every one of you who are caring for our communities throughout the holiday season, and indeed as they do during the rest of the year. On Garda Shikona, the prison service, all of the staff in our hospitals and emergency services, and members of the defence forces serving abroad who are building or supporting peace. May I wish each and every one of you, wherever you may be, a peaceful and happy Christmas. Verbana. One of my earliest December memories is the kindergarten Christmas play when I was four. The story was set on Christmas Eve. Santy was readying to hit the skies with Rudolph, but the weatherman was in a huff with the result that there was no snow. This particular weatherman was no met and meteorologist, but a moody and easily aggravated wizard who presided over a wicked government that created the world's weather from their headquarters at the South Pole. He was required to have a scowl that would frighten all the gnomes. Think Brian Cowan in shorts, you're not far off. The weatherman was my theatrical debut, my chance to shine. I played him with the gusto of a high baby's Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, I drank that Santy's milkshake. A girl called Neve was my tarnishta, I mean my wife, sorry, but it wasn't a marriage made in heaven. The story required that she often hold my hand. This would have been fine, but Neve had the runniest nose in all Dunleary, which she persisted in wiping with the same hand that she employed to clutch my own. When the only thing bonding yourself and your leading lady is mucus, it's hard to truly give of your best. Reverend Mother gave me a beard made of cotton wool and a crepe paper tunic with spangles glued onto it. The effect was panto mode twink meets Osama bin Laden. Why a nun in 1970s Ireland would have had a false beard, I don't know, and I'm not entirely sure that I want to. The reindeers wore beige tea towels, which made them deeply convincing. Some even had paper hats with antlers crayoned onto them. The more committed would vigorously attempt reindeer noises. Since reindeer were not among the native species of the greater Dunleary area, creative improvisation was practised. There were moos, baas, bleats, hoots, barks, roars and oinks. One classmate assured me with the autocratic conviction possessed by toddlers that a reindeer sounded exactly like a bat, but alas, I hadn't heard a bat either. You can see that the production was a tinderbox, and the spark was on its way. One morning at rehearsal, a confrontation erupted between the shepherds and the Holy Family. A shepherd had called the Virgin Mary a rude name. She responded with an uppercut to the chin. It was one in, all in. Never had I witnessed such a fisticuff. Reverend Mother was about as effective at halting hostilities as a celebrity banished or would be in Fallujah. Driven back from us in fear for her very wimple, she was helpless before the tsunami of tots. There were thumpings and bootings. Bits of manger were brandished. It was like one of those 19th century punch cartoons of Irish people enjoying themselves on a coffin ship. I recall seeing St. Joseph Ball at the Bethlehem innkeeper, You're claimed, and reflecting that the Gospels might have turned out somewhat differently had the real St. Joseph opted for such an assertive approach. It also might have led to some interesting carols, such as, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, don't tell me you're full or you're gonna be dead. Reinforcements arrived, a crack team of postulants, renowned for hard-assed tactics and unfair use of the scapular. In the scuffle, one of the wise men proved he wasn't that wise after all, when he was caught spitting at an archangel and snapping a leg off baby Jesus. Baby Jesus was played by Roddy, my lovely eldest sister Emer's most prized dolly. He had eyes that looked at you crossways and was devoid of genitalia, so there was enough on his mind already without assaulting him. But I remember the baby Jesus being hurled across the classroom, then being used to bludgeon one of Santi's elves while she was sat upon by our Blessed Mother. It's an image that stays with you somehow. December in my childhood was a difficult month anyway, for a reason I remember almost every time I enter a church these days, which doesn't happen as often as it used to back then. 
for it was on the 8th of December in 1966 that the younger of my two sisters was born. It's a date that used to see the beginnings of Christmas in Ireland in the days before we decided it had to start in August. Country people would come to Dublin to do their shopping for the season, and the lights, such as they were, would be switched on by the Lord Mayor, resulting in power cuts from Kerry to Donegal. That date is also the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, a day of obligation for Catholics. And since my mother was in hospital having given birth that very morning, it was my beloved and devout grandmother and my wonderful father who took upon themselves the duty of taking my three-year-old self to Mass. The church was packed. It was a different time in Ireland. And we arrived late and stood in the back with many others. When the time came for communion, my father and grandmother took it in turns to hold me while each of them approached the crowded altar to receive it. I began to feel left out, and I didn't like that feeling. And anyone who was in Glasgow Church on that December day in 1966 may still remember what happened. During the fervently reverent silence that descended immediately following communion, the priest approached the tabernacle and piously opened it, replacing the chalice and bowing his head. My three-year-old mouth opened, and out came the blood-curdling shriek, He's locking it all away, and I didn't get any! It was the beginning of a difficult relationship with Catholicism generally, and I often think it goes back to that moment. As for the beautiful baby who had been born to our family that morning, perhaps few would have expected that one day she would record a song called Nothing Compares to You, which would enter people's memories with such beauty and power. There is possibility in the air, something mysterious in December, and no amount of tinsel and gaudiness and noise can ever truly crush it out. One of the most beautiful and attractive aspects of Christmas is, of course, the Christmas tree. And it has a special magic for adults and children alike. And it's an image that remains with people throughout their lives. It's like a sign of life itself, of growth, of generosity. And this poem by Julia Goddard is called simply The Christmas Tree. It grew in the woods, and the sun shone down and crowned its head with a golden crown. Every morning and every night the fir tree stood in a blaze of light. Hurrah for the fir tree, the Christmas tree, a prince in all the forests is he. It grew for Christmas, it raised its head. The fir tree to glory will come, the wind said. The woodman came and bore it away, and the wind soft whispered of Christmas Day. Hurrah for the fir tree, the Christmas tree, a prince in all the forests is he. The fir tree stood in a beautiful room, a hundred tapers dispelled the gloom. All decked with gold and silver was he, and lilies and roses so fair to see. Hurrah for the fir tree, the Christmas tree, a prince in all the forests is he. Wide spread his branches, and bending low, with toys and trinkets, a goodly show. The wealth of the Indies is mine, said he. And the children peeped in at the Christmas tree. Hurrah for the fir tree, the Christmas tree, a prince in all the forests is he. The little children, with merry shout, came crowding, clustering, round about. Brighter and rounder grew their eyes, and they gazed at the fir tree in glad surprise. Hurrah for the fir tree, the Christmas tree, a prince in all the forests is he. The fir tree listened with branches bent, and drank in their praises with sweet content. With pride and pleasure, his heart beat fast, for he knew that his glory had come at last. Hurrah for the fir tree, the Christmas tree, a prince in all the forests is he. Christmas time when all the lights are coming on at night. 
I just started doing it in the last few years, but it's swimming in the sea on Christmas Day. Just general Christmas dinner with the, the, the family, everybody getting together again. You know that point just after you finish your Christmas dinner, you know, when everyone takes a nap. Christmas drinks on Christmas Eve. Being in Ireland, it's all about the roast and the mashed potatoes and all the kinds of potatoes that I learned about. Uh, I suppose Christmas Eve is one of my favourites. Normally it's just myself and my wife at home, um, a couple of glasses of hot port, a few minutes pies, and that's pretty much it. The rest of it, it's just a relaxation and having nothing to do. Uh, opening all the presents on Christmas morning, you know, all the young kids getting up really early and everyone opening the presents at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'd say for me it'd be just having dinner with the family, having a good time, having everyone together for a short amount of time as you get. Just meeting up with family and uh, having the grandmother come in, taking all the money off, playing cards, you know, in the night time, and a few drinks. That's tradition, really, for me, you know. Just having the family around, so it's the main thing. Getting presents on Christmas morning. It's just the family getting together on Christmas Day and the day after, and yeah, giving gifts and just eating a big meal and relaxing. And and also when your dad's snoring, I enjoy that a lot. He passes out, looks like he's comatose, and uh, you know, and then. It's just all good fun, so yeah. Um, spending, spending time with family, having a nice uh, family dinner and uh, open presents, um, and uh, playing games, like, uh, and wait, uh, see who wins, like, that's, that's the family tradition. Like. Christmas time is fun, to be with my family, and spend time with the people I cannot see all over the year, have a big dinner with all traditional Italian foods in front of the Christmas tree. Um, playing nerdy board games with family. Fun pudding with brandy butter, lashing the brandy butter, and that's it, you know, that really makes Christmas for me. Um, I love the mistletoe. I love the idea of uh, that awkward moment of <laughs> having to kiss somebody under the, you know, you have to do it. Um, probably going to the pub on Christmas Eve with all my friends. My favourite tradition on Christmas is to visit my family and eating some ducks and some potatoes and whatever, like we usually do in Germany. I think mine is baking Christmas cookies to put on the Christmas tree. And Sarah's mom. Mine is trying to mimic my mother's treacle bread, gingerbread, that we'd have on Christmas Eve. Probably meeting up with friends that I haven't seen in a long time and basically spending time with family and friends. Almost every periodical that runs to a Christmas number, and the only ones that don't are the telephone directory and the summer bus guide, gets a member of the staff to dig up and modernize, or has foisted on it by an outside contributor, that traditional standby of the double number, hints for your Christmas party. And for the life of me, I can't see why. Because except in prisons, big hotels and the sergeant's mess, there is no such thing as a Christmas party. The Christmas party was invented by Dickens, and eagerly adopted by modern writers of crime stories who have to have some way of getting a herd of suspects together under one roof. I resent the suggestion that one cannot face Christmas properly without a collection of puzzles, games, and mathematical posers. I regard it as an affront to the tradition of mere gluttony and indolence that marks Christmas in respectable middle-class homes that can't afford it. But the most degrading feature of these unnecessary hints for non-existent parties is the batch of illustrations that goes with it. The main idea in the artist's mind is that a person in a paper hat is necessarily enjoying himself, which is a gross exaggeration. A young man in a paper hat that leaves his curls showing may be enjoying himself. A young girl in a paper hat that suits her, which is the only kind of paper hat that a young girl will wear, is almost certainly enjoying herself. But a middle-aged man in a paper hat that makes him look repulsive, which is the only kind of paper hat made, is already comatose. If he weren't, he wouldn't permit this indignity to his face. At the paper hat stage of the Christmas dinner, I can pull a cracker as well or as badly as any man of my age. I pull with the ponderous insensibility of an elephant dragging a log out of a swamp. I pull without hilarity, almost without emotion, and I know what's coming. 
The other party to the contract may get a hat that will show off his curls, or be kind to the tilt of her nose, but I am doomed from the start. I get a hat that splits on my skull, and makes me look like Crippen, Jack the Ripper, or the last days of Henry VIII. But I don't care. At that stage of the Christmas dinner, I am past caring. I am replete. I am as relaxed as a ox after a long day in deep pasture. If you took a photograph of me and my paper hat, you could give it any title you like, from freak potato to curious cloud formation on Mount Everest. A middle-aged man in a Christmas paper hat is fit only to move from the table, evict his eldest son from the armchair, and reflect on the annual problem of how to doze off without either letting his cigar go out or setting fire to his paper hat. He grunts when he's offered fruit, he grunts when he's asked to put coal on the fire, he grunts when somebody suggests a cup of tea, and he grunts when the children run across his toes. But, and make no mistake about this, he is not bored. His spirit is not broken. He is still head of the household. He is a very Christian gentleman, taking his rest and enjoying himself in the great old European tradition. He may seem half asleep, he may seem wholly asleep, but he is still in control of his faculties. And you can prove it by asking him to join in any of the imbecilities of the magazine-type Christmas party, to take two matches from twelve and leave thirteen, or get a penny from under a tumbler without touching the tumbler, or choose any card from the pack. He may be wearing a paper hat, he may be looking like a fried egg, but he is not to be trifled with. Admittedly, he won't answer you in words, because he is beyond words, but he will answer you. He will rise from his chair in slow installments. He will look at you like a wounded lion from beneath the eaves of his torn paper hat. And he will then go, majestically, upstairs, to bed. Come closer to the fire, my son, and stay a while with me. I'd like to talk of Christmas time when I was young and free. The holly gleaming on the wall, a turf fire burning bright. The candles on the windowsill that fill the world with light. A virgin snow upon the thatch, the robin's chirpy song, the postman whistling gaily as he trudged his way along. The little church down in the glen, the people's eyes aglow. The chanting of the midnight choir, all heads are bowing low. The red boys coming down the road with faces bright and gay. The dancing of the boys and the girls that took your breath away. The postcards on the mantelpiece from lands across the sea. Oh, Christmas time in Kerry was a golden memory. Christmas pudding. 
the manuscript recipe book which is fat with pasted in cuttings and flowery incrustations is always resurrected about the first week in Advent. You can make soda scones and potato cakes out of your head, it seems, but to make a plum pudding properly, you must follow the rubrics. The page opens almost of its own accord, for its fruit stains are as good as a bookmarker. Besides, it is the only page that is ever consulted in these degenerate days, for the other recipes in the book are dead letters. They were inserted many long years ago in a welter of good intentions, and I can't remember when I tasted banana chartreuse, sole a la Dubois, or lobster canapes under my own roof. However, I'm not complaining. It is good to have all this magnificence on record. It may be useful some day to a great-great-grandchild writing a monograph on the diet of the lower middle classes in the 20th century, and it would be too bad if posterity got the notion that we lived just on bacon and cabbage. The making of the plum pudding is a communal activity, and in every corner of the kitchen, task forces are set to work on sultanas, beef suet, mixed spices, eggs and breadcrumbs, all of which must be blended together in due course, like the instruments of an orchestra, and their entries timed just as carefully. Meanwhile, the conductor's head is bent over her faded and yellowing score. My first cue is usually... Great bread, this being regarded as an operation which puts no great strain on the intelligence. But there is much more in it than meets the eye, and it is not by any means a matter of taking a stale loaf into a corner and worrying it. It demands care and precision, and no matter how watchful I am, I always get some shredded flesh into the bowl. Meanwhile, other subcontractors are washing currants, stoning raisins, and there isn't a word out of any of them, except when they're accusing one another to the central authority, this being one of the few occasions on which children refrain from speaking when their mouths are full. When the stale loaf has been reduced to crusty end pieces, I am seconded to the citrus fruits section and instructed to grate the rind off a lemon. Oh, this sounds easy too, but it has its own problems, and by the time the lemon is as naked and wobbly as a soft egg from the inside of a turkey, there is even less flesh on my fingertips, and I have a fellow feeling for the saints of old who were flayed alive. However, there is a good time coming, for presently we reach the entry, stout or ale, which is recipe book for what'll you have? This is a man's job, and it can be entrusted only to someone of years and experience, someone who knows that you can't walk into a public house a few weeks before Christmas and ask for one miserly bottle of stout to carry away with you. The thing to do is to ask for a dozen, and it isn't, and it is only prudence to sample the brew whilst the man behind the counter is tying them up to look like a packet of candles. Ah, you'll feel better then, and after the second bottle, the cold of the glass no longer scalds the raw spots on your fingers. No fair mind ho husband, however, would delay on an occasion like this. There is still much work to be done, and you must think of the little woman. I'm always a little puzzled by one line of our recipe which reads, If liked, rum or whiskey may be added. The syntax seems shaky. I like rum and whiskey, though not necessarily in that order. But I hate the thought of adding them to a sodden brown mass that looks like a cold linseed poultice, and which, in addition, has already had as much stout as it can carry. Women, however, have their own notions, and they think nothing of squandering a whole glass of brandy on an inanimate object without leaving a little in the bot bottom of the tumbler for consumption on the premises. This, I suggest, shows very poor consideration for a man who, if he has not worked himself to the bone, has at least given the skin off his fingers." The plum pudding is boiled in two installments, and when the first moiety is snoring in the pot, as if the brandy has gone to its head, 
A great peace descends upon the house, and the man who is paying for it all will not be thought any the worst of if he says, I think I'll have a bottle of stout. The worst of Christmas is over now, and the good woman can look the neighbours in the face. For at this time of year, there are two classes of women, the improvident, who haven't done a thing yet, and the wise matrons who have their cakes and puddings made and they lose no opportunity of saying so. Who shall find a valiant woman? She shall not fear for her house in time of snow. Let her works praise her. And just to be on the safe side, she adds an odd straff herself. The worst of Christmas is over, as I say. The pudding is made. And all we have to think about now is whether the oven will take the turkey and Auntie Mary's size in gloves and sixpences for the carol singers and the license for the car and frenzied subtractions on the back cover of our checkbooks. Though, though why there should be all this fuss about plum pudding, I just don't know, for it tastes no better than a bread pudding that has done a little tippling. Besides, a plum pudding is not really for eating. The family gets a tiny ration on Christmas Day, but the rest is for pride and glory and is doled out to friends and relations. One of the ethics of Christmas being, you can't go without tasting my pudding. Men visitors submit to this ritual like the heroes they are, especially if they have already got a sup out of the bottle. But their wives are enthusiastic. They say, oh, what a lovely pudding. I must get the recipe from you sometime. But they don't mean a word of it, for they speak before their taste buds could possibly have reached a verdict, and they are no sooner outside the door than they shrug their shoulders and they add the rider. I didn't think much of her pudding. lathers out again. The three wise men are putting up the Christmas lights. Our town always looks well at Christmas. There's planning and stratifying and one extending lather and looking up. They all look up. The whole town looks up. That's where the lights are. Up. They won't come down until the lather goes up again and there's a new and prosperous year. But now, December's here, and the three wise men descend on our town and start unraveling the year before, and talking volts and power and wattage and where they late the dinner. The three wise men won't blow a fuse or let the lather fall. Safe pass is out the window when there's faith and hope and midnight masks and rubber soles. They'll do the crib then when the Christmas lights are done and hope no one runs off with baby Jesus again this year. Some scallywag full of beer doing the twelve pubs last year took them for the crack. Poor little wooden man fell off the counter in MJ's and then they brought him back with a hangover wrapped in a Christmas jumper. He's more popular than the last plastic Jesus. No one wanted him at all. Didn't even look like a baby, let alone a fellow you'd bring on a pub crawl. And the three wise men look up, and satisfied with their achievements, they have their Christmas drink in our Christmas town, full of lights and stars and angels, and a little wooden baby Jesus nailed down for security reasons. And the whole town looks up in wonder, and our crystal eyes ponder, and thank heavens for the lights above, and our friends and neighbours, and the ones we love, the three wise men, and one extending ladder. Happy Christmas. Patrick Havener wrote many beautiful things in poetry and prose about childhood. 
and this Christmas poem called Christmas Childhood captures the child's feeling about the extraordinary nature of the time and he, he brings to life the wonderful mythological spiritual reality of the three wise kings and Christmas coming over the townlands and then the ordinariness of his father playing the melodion and his mother milking the cows and that's Kavanagh's magic to be able to present the ordinary and the extraordinary in one poem Christmas Childhood My father played the melodion outside at our gate there were stars in the morning east and they danced to his music across the wild bogs his melodion called to linens and callens as I pulled on my trousers in a hurry I knew some strange thing had happened outside in the cowhouse my mother made the music of milking the light of her stable lamp was a star and the frost of Bethlehem made it twinkle. A water hen screeched in the bog. Mass-going feet crunched the wafer ice on the potholes. Somebody wistfully twisted the bellows wheel. My child poet picked out the letters on the grey stone. In silver, the wonder of a Christmas townland, the winking glitter of a frosty dawn. Cassiopeia, was over Cassidy's hanging hill. I looked, and three wind bushes rode across the horizon, the three wise kings. An old man passing said, Can't he make a talk? The melodion. I hid in the doorway and tightened the belt of my box-pleated coat. I nicked six nicks on the doorpost with my penknife's big blade. There was a little one for cutting tobacco. And I was six Christmases of age. My father played the melodion. My mother milked the cows. And I had a prayer, like a white rose pinned on the Virgin Mary's blouse. On the one and only occasion on which I was guilty of housebreaking and larceny, I was incited and briefed, aided and abetted, by a member of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. The force, as it was called, had a deservedly high reputation, but for once it was an accessory before the fact. It was two days before Christmas, and the last of our four turkeys had just arrived. They came, separately, from relatives in the country, each of whom thought that he was the sole donor of our Christmas dinner and they were hung on arrival on nails behind the door of a dark cubbyhole known as Under the Stairs. Sometimes you forgot that they were there, and when you opened the door to steal an apple or a handful of raisins, the four turkeys would swing as frighteningly as corpses on a gibbet. But we didn't forget very often. Having four turkeys in the house gave us, temporarily, a higher social standing than the rest of the children in the neighborhood, and we made the most of it while it lasted. We had conducted tours to the cubbyhole, and the curious and incredulous paid up in bullseyes and nutty favours. The coming of the turkeys was our December calendar. Once the last of them had come, there was no doubt at all about Christmas, and you knifed the last pennies out of your red savings box. Our turkey morgue had the status of a Madame Tussauds, the stubby red dewlaps of the birds, their pathetic tail feathers that were used afterwards as household dusters, and the tiny bad-tempered beaks that looked as if they might stab and nip at any minute. All these things horrified and delighted us at once. Coarse, blue-white turkey flesh was on the menu of all my childhood nightmares, and when I learned years afterwards that cold turkey means dead as mutton, I saw the aptness of the metaphor at once. We boasted quite a lot about our four turkeys, and on this particular day, being short of a child audience, I boasted to the policeman at the corner of the next street. I told them that we had hundreds and hundreds of aunts and uncles in the country, and that they sent us four turkeys every year. The policeman put his mittened hands behind his back, rocked on his heels, 
and looked down at me over his strapped chin. Four, he said, is too many. You'll never eat all of them. We'll eat one on Christmas Day, I said, and another one on Sunday. Even so, he said, you'll need help with the other two. So if you bring one of them down to me here now, I'll eat it for you. As well as your own, I said. Divil a one of me own I have, he said. Now, I knew that no one else had four turkeys, but I'd taken it for granted that everybody else had at least one, and I felt that some hideous mistake must have been made in the allocation of Christmas fowl when this man-mountain had been overlooked. I'll bring you a turkey, I said, if you tell me where you live. I said you never carry it that far. Bring it down to me here now, and I'll sling it over me shoulder. I'll go home for one now, I said. Don't forget, said the man without a Christmas dinner. I won't. And I didn't. The policeman put me down as a seven-year-old liar and began to pace his beat again. I went home to steal a turkey. I had a moment of panic when I was alone in the mortuary with the four swinging corpses, but I managed to lift one of them by its linked scaly feet and its horrible floppy neck. The feel of the cold, slimy flesh made me think of an octopus at the bottom of a dark pool, but I didn't turn back. I thought of the poor, hungry policeman, and I went on with the burglary. Even at its loneliest, ours was a crowded house, but as luck, good or ill, would have it, no one saw me stagger out from under the stairs with my arms full of Christmas dinner. No one heard me open the front door. No one saw me slink out on my burke and hair errand. And once I was out, I was the safest houses. I was only a small boy carrying a big turkey. Nobody noticed me. That is, nobody except the policeman. But the policeman made up for all the rest. He rocked unbelievingly on his great heels. He raised his mighty arms to heaven, and he cried, Glory be to God! I thought at the time that he was giving thanks for a good dinner, but looking back at it now, I see that he was merely making the response proper to one who was committed professionally to the preservation of peace and goodwill. Glory be to God! That was all he said. And having said it, he took me in one hand and the turkey in the other and prepared to make restitution. We walked up the street together. The quick and the dead, boy, policeman, turkey. It turned out to be a most exciting journey, for we made a sort of walking intelligence test that most of the passers-by failed to pass. I had stolen a turkey. The policeman was bringing me to the lockup. We were the law, the culprit, and the evidence. When a procession of this kind appears in the streets, the sympathy of the crowd is usually with the prisoner. And on this occasion, it certainly was with me. My youth, the enormous bulk of my escort, and the spirit of Dickens were factors that weighed heavily in my favour, and we soon attracted a biased and pitying audience. There was even a strong possibility of riot and civil commotion. A drunk man made a half-hearted attempt to rescue me, and a woman with a shawl shouted, Ah, don't be too hard, Alum Constable, sure it's Christmas time. And when this appeal failed, she said, You have a lot to do. Arrest and children, you big pudding, you. Why don't you hit your match? Things were a little quieter when we got off the main street, but a fair-sized crowd followed us to the very door. The constable had a lot to say then. He had to charge me with forcible entry, burglary, the possession of stolen goods, and attempting to bribe a uniformed officer. He had a lot to say. But all he did say when my mother opened the door was, well, glory be to God, ma'am. He was a very pious constable. When the situation had been explained, the constable carried the turkey down through the hall. I can still hear the crunch of the snow between his heels and the lino, and he hung it once more on its nail under the stairs. Then he took off his helmet, cooled his forehead with his sleeve, and said, Could you ever be up to them? He was so deeply moved that we sat him down at the kitchen table and we gave him a finger of whiskey. After his strenuous evening, he deserved no less. A writer who loved Christmas dearly was John B. Keane, 
who died a couple of years ago. Lovely man, great writer, and a celebrant of all occasions, such as Christmas or All-Irelands or weddings or whatever. A man who loved life. And as a boy at school, he was asked to write a poem, and he wrote a poem called The Street. And really, it's a love poem. It's about, if you like, the spirit of Christmas. It's about loving his own street in Listole, and where he was reared, and about which he wrote a lot. It's a, a beautiful poem, and it seems to me to capture uh, Christmas perfectly, because it shows his love of streets and people, and love of his family, love of justice. Indeed, you could say, love of love. The Street by John B. Keane I love the flags that pave the walk. I love the mud between. The funny figures drawn in chalk. I love to hear the sound of drays upon their round. Of horses and their clock-like walk. I love to watch the corner people gawk and hear what underlies their idle talk. I love to hear the music of the rain. I love to hear the sound of yellow waters flushing in the main. I love the breaks between, when little boys begin to sail their paper galleons in the drain. Grey clouds sail west, and silver tips remain. The street, thank God, is bright and clean again. Here, within a single little street, is everything that is, of pomp and blessed poverty made sweet, and all that is of love, of man and God above, of happiness and sorrow and conceit, of tragedy and death and bittersweet, of hope, despair, illusion, and defeat, a golden, mellow peace forever clings along the little street. There are so very many lasting things beyond the wall of strife in our beleaguered life. There are so many lovely songs to sing of God and his eternal love that rings of simple people and of simple things. Happy Christmas. On Christmas Eve, when I was young, the way we look forward to twilight, for when darkness fell, it was Christmas night, the greatest night of all the year. We young lads would be up at the crack of dawn that morning to have the house ready for the night. Berry holly would have to be cut and brought in to deck out the windows, the top of the dresser, along the back of the settle and the clevy. We'd bring in ivy too, and put a sprig of laurel behind the pictures above the lintel of the door and around the fireplace. But we wouldn't overdo it, or if we did, my mother would make us cut it down a bit, reminding us that she'd like to feel that she was in her own house for Christmas and not in the middle of a wood. Well, the transformation we could bring about in the kitchen with all that greenery. But we weren't finished yet. The Christmas candles would have to be prepared. These candles were of white tallow, as thick as the handle of a spade, and nearly as tall. In some houses, they'd scoop out a hole in a big turnip, and they'd put the candle sitting into that. A big crock we'd use, we'd put the candle standing into it, and then we'd pack it around with sand. And when the candle was firm in position, we'd spike sprigs of holly or laurel into the sand about the candle. And we'd have colored paper, too, to put around the outside of the crock to take the bare look off it. With that same colored paper, the girls in the family, if they were anywhere handy, could make paper flowers to decorate the holly. Then what would cap it all is if you had a length of young ivy and spiral it up around the candle. It looked lovely. That done, we'd go through the same maneuver until there was a candle in a crock for every window in the house. 
Then we'd be praying for night to fall, for you couldn't see the right effect until the candles were lit. That honor of lighting the candles would fall to the youngest in the house. My father would lift him up, saying, Inanimate hour, in the name of the Father and of the Son. And when the child had blessed himself, he would put the lighting spill to the candle. And from that candle, the other candles would be lit. And we'd be half gasped with excitement, enjoying the great blaze of light. There was no electricity at that time. Running from the rooms to the kitchen and out into the yard to see what the effect was like from the outside. Then, when we'd get tired of looking at the candles on our own windows, we'd and try to name the neighbors' houses as the bunches of lights came on. Two windows here and three windows there, across the dark countryside and away up to the foot of the hills. And as sure as anything, someone'd be late, and we'd rush into my mother saying, Satan, there's no light on yet in Kelly's. Go down on your knees, my mother would say. Well, the time she'd pick for it, just as the salt lean was ready, and the white onion sauce, and the potato steaming over the fire. Ah, but I suppose there'd be no religion in the world only for the women. The wives driving their husbands out to confession, up to the altar rails and down on their knees to say the rosary. My father is mined a thousand miles away, doing eleven Hail Marys to the decade, and twelve Hail Marys to the decade. And my mother saying, Glory, Ned, and he taking that for encouragement and doing thirteen to the decade. The rosary in our house didn't end at five decades, not at all. After the Hail Holy Queen, my mother would branch into the trimmings. Come, Holy Ghost, send down those beams which sweetly flow in silent streams. My mother would pray for everyone, in sickness and in need. She'd pray for the poor souls and the sinful soul that was at that very moment trembling before the judgment seat above. She'd pray for the sailor on the sea, protect him from the tempest and bring him safely home. She'd pray for the lone traveler on the highway, and of course, she'd pray for our emigrants. And last of all, she would pray for the members of her own family. God bless and save us all. St. Patrick, Bridget, and Columkill guard each wall. May the Queen of Heaven and the angels bright keep us in our house from all harm this night. Our knees would be aching as we got up off the floor. And it would take my father a while to get the prayer arch out of his back. Well, we wouldn't be sitting down to the supper when my mother had blessed herself again, a preliminary to grace before meals, and you could hardly blame my father for losing his patience. Is it in a monastery we are, he'd say? Haven't we done enough praying for one night? After the supper, there was Christmas cake for anyone with a sweet tooth. My father would never look at the Christmas cake. His eye would be on the big earthenware jar at the bottom of the kitchen, and it would be a great relief to him when my mother would say to us, Go out there, one of you, and tell the neighboring men to come in for a while. That was the custom that night, for near neighbors to visit each other's houses. In a while's time, the men had come, and at the first lag in the conversation, my father would take the cork off the jar, and he'd fill out drinks for everyone. And the men, you know, uh, by the way, not noticing what was going on. And then when they'd get the glasses, very surprised, they'd say, What's this? <laughs> What's this for? Go on and take it, my father would say. It is Christmas night and more look to us. Then the men's faces would light up, and lifting their glasses high, they'd begin a chorus of, Happy Christmas, Ned! Happy Christmas, everyone! And the same to Emen, my father would answer. May we all be alive again this time twelve months. And my mother, who was never very happy in the presence of strong drink, would direct her gaze in the direction of the Christmas candle and say, The grace of God to us all. Today, I want someone to tell the story of the birth of Jesus. Now, I know you all know the story already, but I'd like Nancy to tell it. This night, a lady on St. Joseph was going up to get registered, and when you were walking down the road, 
um, you are knocking at the doors and said you had no room. And the good people, if you had known that those, the, that was a lady and St. Joseph, they would have left her up and let them in. And the bad people up there and said, so they don't be poor and they'd only pay a few coppers. And the mean kids that don't get Holy Communion on our confession on, on Christmas morning, they're just the same as the second fellas, the bad fellas, that um, said to a lady with no real fire. And with, um, the kids, the mean kids, they um, were too busy eating their sausages or playing with toys or whatever they had for the breakfast. And um, they were going down the road and they met this man and um, he said, have you any room? And he said, no, but there's an old stable over there that I owned if you want to go into it. <laughs> and he went over and a lot of them from heaven at 12 o'clock and loads of beautiful angels was with him. And it was these shepherds and shepherds are fellows that might the bulls and cows and sheep and little lambs and all. And um, he heard this beautiful music up in the sky. An angel disappeared to him and he said, I was wondering what's up and he said, yeah, and he said, the Saviour is born if he's want to go to see him follow that star up in the sky. And it was a beautiful star. Not just shepherds, who else was there? There was these three white kings and um, they, were, they were all in different countries and they always used to look, back, look up at the sky and they looked up this night and they saw a beautiful star up in the sky and an angel disappeared to the three countries and told them that Saviour was born and if they wanted to go that they had to follow that beautiful star up in the sky and when they were going the star stopped and they stopped and, and he said surely it's not this old stable that the king was born, king is born in. But we were expecting a palace. And he went and he knelt down and he adored him. And um, when they were coming back, the same angel disappeared. And he said, um, I wouldn't have been going home to Harry And he said, yeah. And he said, you're not, you better find another way of going home because he wants to kill the baby Jesus. And, um, he, 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 did, he didn't go back and he, he knew that they were at the school in him and he knew that they were at the school in him and um, he was getting into shopping temples and he called these servants over this day and he said go out and kill the little farm babies under two years old, the baby Brian and this when he all made faces even though they were bad, he always wanted to hit our match. He didn't, he didn't want to hit little babies. That wasn't our match. And um, the all made faces and said, you don't not to be making faces. You're getting well paid. And you're going out, Mr. Pink. He knocked at his door and said, will you let me see our baby boy under two years old? Just a minute the woman brought her out and said, Mr. just stopped her shirt nice and cut off Mr. little baby's hair. And... With all the little babies that got killed that time, Mr. died for God and Mr. Little Innocent up in heaven there. That was very good, Nancy. Now, I hope you're not too sad thinking about those poor innocents. Just remember now that Christmas is all about toys and eating lots of food. There's a lot more to it than that. A very interesting moment in Christmas is St. Stephen's Day when the Wren boys gather and take to the streets and the country roads with the tambourines. They're all beautifully dressed and they celebrate that moment when the little Wren conquered the eagle. There was a competition among the birds to see which one could fly the highest. And the cute little Wren hid in the eagle's tail and when the eagle rose higher than any of the other birds, but was exhausted by the climb, the effort. The little wren crept out of the eagle's tail and flew higher. That is the spirit of the wren boy. They come into the houses and they conquer the houses with their music and people give them money and applause. So this poem is called The Wren Boy. 
The little eagle-conquering wren has died for him, tautly poised on the threshold there, gaunt in his Fomorian pride, white feathers in his hair, swaddled in gold and green. His right fist flicks the swarthy stick and beats the goatskin tambourine. The majesty of Stephen's day is on his face, grown proud as Lucifer as he begins to play. Lithe bodies stir to his music, cries of praise unfold, and fierce pride leaps in his eyes. As the ancient drumbeat rings from beaten skin, he steps into the days of unremembered kings. Alone he tops this day of hectic moments in a flood of notes, their gay swashbuckling passion crashing through his blood. Christmas townlands wait, Carrick, Lena Moore, road and field, they undulate to every open door, village, byre, and frosty ways, so farmer, townie, whining crone grow generous with praise. He knows dominion now, and leaves behind the heavy spade, the ponderous plough, for glory in the mind and blood, a man whose pride in stick and drum commemorates the little eagle-conquering wren.